Welcome to Coffee with Kupke, a production of St. Paul Inside the Walls. Here on Coffee with Kupke, we grab a cup of coffee, at least we're claiming this is coffee. We sit with Monsignor Raymond Kupke, the pastor of St. Anthony's in Hawthorne, professor at Immaculate Conception Seminary, diocesan archivist. We sit with Monsignor Kupke to delve into the history of Catholicism in the Diocese of Patterson. My name is Father Paul Manning. I am the vicar for evangelization for the Diocese of Patterson. So grab your cup of coffee and let's jump right in. I'm going to take a sip. Welcome back. I am on my third cup. What are you on? First. First. So uh, many of you who are listening can't see this, but we are drinking out of our official Coffee with Cupkey mugs with the uh, the logo for our uh, podcast. And I don't know why, but the coffee seems to taste a lot better in the Coffee with Cupkey mug. Now, if they make a $30 donation, they get two mugs. Right? Oh, yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds about right. Um, so you brought with you some archival material. And so I just want to I, I want to uh, point uh, a couple of these things out because they relate to previous episodes. So, Raymond, do you want to um, talk about the, the cover of the 1986 Diocese of Patterson directory? Right. Uh, 1986 was the bicentennial of the death of Father Farmer. So we got kind of enthusiastic about that, and we went down to Philadelphia and photographed the final page of his baptismal register. So that's the background of the photo. And and we will put this up uh, on screen for people to see. And then the little insert, the family in the insert in front of St. Joseph's Church in West Milford, they are the descendants today, 200 years later, of the last baptism that Farmer did in West Milford in 1786. That's amazing. And and, um, the the last name of the folks? Uh, I have forgotten. This is 20 years. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But that's something. And then... And then a little artist sketch of what Farmer might have looked like. We have no paintings of Farmer, so we we only have word descriptions of what he looked like. Uh, Brian Hansberger posted uh, uh, an image of Father Farmer from a stained glass window. A stained glass window. Yes, at St. Joseph's in West Milford. Right. Yeah, and he's dressed in what would have been lay clothes at that time. Yeah, yeah. And that's probably how he traveled. Right. Okay. Um, so the, the, I'm curious about our diocesan archives. So as the archivist, you work in the archives. What are our diocesan archives like? Well, we're in pretty good shape, I'd like to think, uh, comparatively speaking. Um, in 1976, as a participation in the American Bicentennial, the Catholic bishops of the United States decided that they would all appoint an historical archivist for their archives. And later that summer, they ran a workshop at the University of Dayton, Ohio. So Bishop Casey appointed me. I'm his last surviving appointment. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, 
without any training or anything else, I went out there and went to this workshop and started uh, putting our archives into some kind of order. Uh, basically, our archives in in April of 1938, the Diocese of Newark sent a truck up to Patterson with all of the deeds and records of the parishes that had been Part of the separated new, down, yeah. and they were all wrapped up in clothesline wrap and just oh dumped goodness. on the front door of the new chancery office, and wow. that was how the archives started. Now, is there a canonical requirement for a, a diocese to have an archi- a, a archive? In, archives? in the old canon law, there basically the the uh, chancellor was default the archivist, and it was up to the chancellor then if they wanted to have a assistant that would be in charge of the archives. Uh, in our country, the three archives that had a head start on organization are Baltimore, Los Angeles, and New York, because they had all had canonization courses mm. for Sarah, Mother Seton. And so they had a little bit of organization in okay. there. But after 1976, uh, Every diocese, to some extent or other, you know, began to organize. Brooklyn's is very organized. They had a full-time priest for years. Um, L.A.'s has a separate building. Wow. Um, it depends on Chicago has a separate building. If, if you walked into our, our archives, what would you see? Shelving. Okay, and a lot of uh, books or uh, yeah. folders uh, or... A lot of documents, a lot of what we call archival boxes or containers that basically the bulk of our co- uh, collection is the chancery records mm. of the diocese. But we also have all the deeds to the property, some going back to the early 1800s. Okay. Um, I know uh, Ken Mullaney, our diocesan lawyer, was a little startled. He needed a deed. And it just didn't occur to him how far back we had owned this property. And I brought it, it was like an 1848 deed. Okay. He kind of looked at it and said, really? Yeah. How about artifacts? Are there artifacts there? We try not to collect artifacts too much because they take up a lot of room. Yes. But uh, we do have we do have some artifacts. We have uh, Bishop McLaughlin, the first bishop's traveling throne, so that he could have his uh, – it's kind of like an erector set. Yeah. Interesting. Um, we have um, Father Jim Doyle, who was a Navy chaplain in the Second World War. We have his traveling mass kit. Okay. Um, nice. We also have Bishop Nava's traveling mass kit. So, at some point, maybe at St. Paul inside the walls, we should do a uh, a display of some yeah. of these things. Yeah. That would be interesting. I was reviewing uh, the third episode, uh, which looks at chapter two of your book, Living Stones. Uh, Chapter two talks about the old faith, the beauty ever ancient, ever new in a new country. And uh, I was thinking uh, the first chapter is a rather simple, linear story, the main character probably being Father Father Farmer. Farmer. But by chapter two um, and our third episode— all of a sudden we have multiple storylines, multiple centers of action, uh, multiple characters. Uh, I was 
it, kind of uh, finding it hard to keep my head wrapped around all of this. And we were talking about the the, the first churches yeah. in the diocese. With all the, and by the way, uh, Father Ray was uh, talking years and dates off the top of his head without any notes. I don't know how you remember the years that all these parishes were founded. Are you seeing that list in your head again? Or I am, but I've dealt with these things so long, I felt I was at all these events. So, <laughs> so uh, how did you decide uh, to organize the material in your book? What, how did you decide what made up a chapter, what made up an era? Hello, this is Bishop Kevin Sweeney of the Diocese of Patterson, and I have a new podcast called Beyond the Beacon. One of the things I love about this podcast is that I get to interview Catholics of different ages and backgrounds and learn what inspires them to live a life of faith, hope, and love. Join me on Thursdays for Beyond the Beacon, wherever you find your favorite podcasts, or watch it on my YouTube channel. Click the link in the description to learn more. Thank you, and God bless you. When Bishop Redimer asked me to do this, he gave me really no guidelines, and I decided on my own that, you know, it, it, the book was written for the 50th anniversary of the Diocese of Patterson, but that would only be 1937 mm. onward. So on my own, I decided that the, the Catholic story of the three counties was so rich and went back so far that I was going to do a history of the Catholic Church in what is now the Diocese of Patterson rather than just, just a history diocese, yeah. of the institution of the diocese. Yeah. So I went back 200 years to, to the early German immigrants and Father Farmer. Um, I sketched out the chapters rather easily, actually. Uh, just in a few minutes, I had it. Okay. Pretty much, you know, a chapter for far for the 18th century, then a chapter for the 19th century up to the first bishop of New Jersey. Okay. The yeah. Newark Diocese. So that's that's a rather uh, well. One of the chapters is only 30, 30 years. Is that yeah. the church organizes? That's the chapter afterwards, leading up to Dean McNulty. Yes. And, yeah. Okay. So yeah. we're we are uh, going to get to that hopefully in this episode. We'll yeah. see. But when, um, when in 1853, Pope Pius IX, uh, in response to the bishops the previous year at the first plenary council of Baltimore, he created 10 new dioceses in the United States in one day. Yes. And one of them was Newark, New Jersey. Right. So this basically took the two halves of New Jersey up to that point Northern New Jersey was in the New York Diocese. Right. And southern central New Jersey was in the Philadelphia Diocese. Yeah. So this basically took the two halves and remelded them together as one compact diocese. And so that was a good place to start a chapter. Yeah. Yeah. So when when that happens, uh, the Pope assigns the secretary to the Bishop of New York, uh, James Roosevelt Bailey. Yeah. As the first bishop of Newark. Yes. Bailey is a convert to the faith, like his aunt, St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, had been a convert. Right. He's also, uh, or he will be, a cousin 
eventually to, to both of the yeah. Roosevelt yeah, presidents. Yeah, we talked about this on the, yeah. in the last episode. Yeah. So um, when he comes in the fall, he came on All Saints Day, I think, in 1853 uh, from New York to Newark. And uh, I think there were 30 churches in the state. And of the 36 were in what is now our diocese. Okay. So Patterson had a church, West Milford had a little church, and then in Morris County, uh, Madison, Dover, Booton, and Morristown each had a church. Okay. And there were little chapels under construction in Whippany and Mendham. Okay. Before we move too far into chapter three, I, I just want, I'm going to ask you uh, a few things about chapter two. Um, the ancient faith, the old faith in the new nation. So um, I'm wondering about the the French connection. Is it is it is it fair to say that uh, Madison? We had a French connection in Madison, and the the priest there, Senez, Senez, S E N E Z. Ultimately, Senez. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it seems to me that he he was a very uh, not quite a father farmer, but he was uh, traveling and missionary in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, the French connection comes in an odd way as a result of the French Revolution. Right. We talked about um, that. There's a yeah. number of families that are outside yeah. of France when the revolution breaks. Yeah. And some of them remembered having served with uh, Lafayette, in this area, in the Morristown area. So a group of them gathered together in what is today Madison, was then about Bottle Hill. Yes. Um, and a couple of them have money, you know, So and they're interrelated. So they begin to bring a priest from Manhattan. Right. We, we, uh, we did cover that. Right. So that's the beginning of St. Vincent's in Madison. Yeah. And by 1825... They actually build a small chapel in Madison, right down the street from here. So maybe we can show that photo. Well, that's the second church. Oh, okay, sorry. And they quickly outgrow the chapel, and then in the 1830s, they build a new church on what is today Ridgedale Avenue. Um, and that's this. That is this building. So, so we will. Um, I'll just hold it up now, but uh, we will put this uh, on uh, on screen. So we'll get that up so you can take a look at it. But this building is still standing, but it doesn't look like a church anymore. You know, if you have that picture and you stand in front of it and just take the steeple off, you can clearly see. Okay. But we're, not, but we're not giving you this picture to stand in front of it because yeah. this belongs in the archives. Right. And this is the, this is the interior of that building with a, an enormous oversized painting behind the altar, which is reportedly the gift of the King of France. Wow. So I saw this picture in Living Stones, and I was trying to figure out how St. Vincent's and Madison looked like this then, and now I'm realizing it was a different building. Yeah. Okay. On a different site. Yeah. So Senez is—my uh, recollection is that he is going out on the weekends to uh, northwestern Jersey. Right. Uh, he's starting in Madison— by the height of their routine, um, Madison was basically the parish for all of northwestern New Jersey, except for what we would call today 
Passaic County. Yes. So they had mission stations from Madison going from Short Hills and Springfield all the way up to Montague, Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. Um, so they covered a vast area. And by the height of their routine, uh, which would be like the early 1840s, um, they would say a mass early in the morning in Madison. And then they would alternate a second mass in one of the principal mission stations, yes. which would be like Dover, Booton, Morristown. And then during the week, they might visit other places. Okay. I should know this, but when, when do, do uh, trains become a mode of transportation? Trains will begin to come in in the late 1840s. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, the first mode of transportation, which kind of prompted Booton to develop and Dover, is the Morris Canal mm. in the 1820s. Uh, it was a you know a arc, an engineering marvel of its time, um, but economically it didn't have an impact for a very long time because the trains came in. Oh. Shortly afterwards, would it would uh, uh, priests have been able to travel on the on the Mars Canal? No, there's no real evidence of that. Um, it was more for commerce, more for yeah. commerce, and, and it and, went one way, right? Or, yeah, you could only yeah. go one way at a time. Right? Yeah, okay. Um, so, but, is it, um, you know, this is also the development of Lake Opatcong, which was raised in height in order to provide a, a steady, reliable source of water for the canal. Okay. So would Senes, would it be uh, accurate to call him in some ways the apostle of northwestern New Jersey? No, we never take that away from Father Foreman. Okay. <laughs> That's good. Another, another person that I wanted to um, uh, highlight is Father McQuaid. Ah. Uh. Bernard so, McQuaid. Yeah. So just a, a brief sketch. It's a, a, a detail that jumped out at me was that he was basically raised by nuns, right? We he sometimes born, born talk about New people raised by wolves. He was raised by nuns. Born uh, in New York City. And um, at, at that point, the, the major outreach of the church was not education, but orphanages. Because uh, the number of orphan children between uh, early diseases, the number of women who died in childbirth, okay. and also industrial accidents as yeah. you know, America becomes an industrial. So he was, he was orphaned very early and raised by the New York Sisters of Charity. Uh, he becomes a priest. Um, he's, uh, he's assigned very, very briefly— to St. Mary's in Manhattan, which is a parish still there. Yeah. Um, but because of his, because of the frailty of his health, <laughs> this is this is a detail I always love. Um, they send him to Madison. Okay, so Madison is uh, Where, therapeutic in all kinds of ways. Right. Well, well, you know, they send him there because the air is supposedly. Much better than Manhattan. Okay. But he's now the pastor of a several hundred square mile parish. Yeah, somehow this is going to... on horseback. You know, I don't yeah. know what, <laughs> what, what that thinking. did for his health. But, <laughs> but And he lasted a long, long time, right? Uh, he lasts until 1909, yeah. Uh, he will ultimately 
I mean, he will become the major first player in the Diocese of Newark, uh, in the sense that when when Bailey arri- when Bailey is appointed Bishop of Newark, and they announce that St. Patrick's, one of the only two churches in Newark, will be the new cathedral, the pastor immediately went over to New York and resigned. Oh, before Bailey even got to Newark. So Bailey appoints McQuaid, yeah. who at that point was in Madison, to be the, the rector of the, the rector cathedral. of the cathedral. So, so McQuaid had to organize the welcome ceremonies oh. for the new bishop. This was, yeah. this all took place in the weeks before Bailey actually arrived in Newark. For the Why first did time. The, the pastor resign? Did he want to stay with New York or? No, he just didn't want all that trouble. <laughs> Got it. He figured being rector of a cathedral was going to be a lot of trouble, and yeah, he didn't, he didn't feel himself up to it, yeah. so he ran. I have a note here, something about the Brick Tavern opposite the town of Milford in Pennsylvania related to McQuaid. Do you remember what that was about? He said master. Oh. Yeah. Is it, do we know if it's still there, the Brick Tavern? Probably in some form or other. Yeah, yeah. You and I know Milford, so... We do, yeah. 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 But I was wondering if it was... What's the, the name? Oh, no, that's on the other side of the river. Yeah. Never mind. But McQuaid then becomes rector of the cathedral, vicar general. Um, but then Bailey uses him to found Seton Hall. So he's back in Madison, founding Seton Hall College, then moves it down to South Orange. Yeah, I think next time we will speak about... A Seton. And then ultimately becomes the Bishop of Rochester, New York. Oh, okay. The first Bishop of Rochester. Yeah. But McQuaid always um, kept a love for this area. For example, um, he would get very, very perturbed if anybody said that the school in Morristown was founded by anybody but him. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, occasionally somebody would say, Father did this and Father did that. And he would always correct them. He says, no, I was the one who started that school. Um, so uh, we're going to finish. Years Sorry. later, uh, in 1904, for the 50th anniversary of the Diocese of Newark, the bishop then entrusted the pastor of Morristown, uh, Joseph Flynn, in writing a history of the diocese. Yes. And Flynn's first thing was to go spend a week with McQuaid in upstate New York and just pull out every detail out of his mind that they could about the early days. Yeah. We're going to finish uh, this episode with this last comment to which I want you to uh, maybe respond. The, The energy at the beginning is Sussex County and in, in, in the, um, in the chapter two, suddenly the, the, the energy and the focus moves south and east. Is that accurate to say? Yeah, um, because the, the iron mining in the upper regions of the diocese, that peters out. Not completely, yeah. but it's not you know, what it was. The, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, the effort then is, first of all, on the canal to bring Pennsylvania coal to New York City, across New Jersey. And then ultimately the railroads will have a major... Got it, uh, got it. Okay. And and they do even today. Yes. Let's leave it there. I want all of you who are listening or watching to make sure that you keep an eye out or an ear out 
for the next episode of Coffee with Cupkey. In order to stay on top of new releases, make sure you follow or subscribe wherever you're listening. And if you are on YouTube, please do drop a like and hit the bell for notifications. While you're at it, make sure to check out the other shows produced by the diocese. Those shows are Beyond the Beacon, hosted by Bishop Kevin Sweeney and Jay Agnish, our Director of Communications, and the Paul Street Journal, hosted by Brian Hansberger and Freddie Garcia. I want to give a special thanks to Joe Janexi, our sound and visual engineer, Caitlin Ferrari, who's involved in pre- and post-production, and Freddie Garcia, who's helping out with this podcast in addition to doing his own. With all that said, I just want to thank you for joining us in uh, Coffee with Cupkey. Keep making Catholic history in the Diocese of Patterson.